0: Psalm 89 is a psalm about the Davidic covenant, and the Davidic covenant is ultimately about the Messiah, which makes this a messianic psalm. Uh, Psalm 89 emphasizes that the Lord will establish David's seed and throne forever. And in Messiah, God's firstborn, uh, we find a person who will be made higher than all the kings of the earth. All these things are emphasized here. In Psalm 89. Now, um, after Psalm 119, longest psalm, uh, 176 verses. And then uh, after Psalm 119 and Psalm 78, the third longest psalm is Psalm 89. Uh, Again, the theme is the Davidic covenant showing the importance of this theme. It's given some extended treatment here as we work through the, the psalm. We don't know the occasion for this psalm, but it relates to a time of calamity after the time that God had made this everlasting covenant with David. Now, some have conjectured that it may have been penned around the time of the Babylonian exile because it looks really dire. Uh, And so, whatever the occasion, things look bleak for Israel. It looked bleak in terms of God fulfilling His promises that He has made to David. Well, it's in that context that the writer really, in faith, emphasizes that God's covenant will be fulfilled to David in spite of how the circumstances look at the present. Bible Knowledge Commentary. The psalm is a study in the age-old apparent conflict between the promises of a faithful, loving God and the catastrophes that often occur. How do you put that all together? Sometimes that's a struggle for us. We've got our theology. We know the kind of God that He is. And yet, very hard times are in in the picture here, too. How do you put that all together? Well, sometimes there is this conflict, and the writer, however, is very clear in his theology that God is faithful to his covenant promises, and that eventually a king will sit on David's throne forever. But the challenge is how to explain the current situation where there is no king on the throne, Now, that's the challenge. Note some key words. I've got them on the overhead there. Mercy, covenant, forever, faithfulness, throne, my servant David, anointed. All these are some key words that we find throughout the psalm. As far as the outline, uh, note uh, the incomparable God and his covenant to David. And uh, we are going to work our way through verse 29 tonight. God's covenant faithfulness, praise for his attributes, the blessedness of God's people, God bless King David, and God's covenant with David. Uh, that's how far we're going to get tonight. I'm uh, going to do a two-part uh, a sermon on this uh, particular psalm here. Uh, okay, well, let's uh, let's pick it up here. The, uh, psalm 89, uh, we have the superscription. Uh, it says, A contemplation of Ethan the uh, Ezra, Ezraite. Um, There are several men named Ethan in in the scriptures. A prominent one was a contemporary of Solomon. Uh, He was a Levite who was famous for his wisdom, which we find elsewhere, and also for his musical contributions in terms of the the worship life of Israel. However, some commentaries think that this particular writer of this psalm may have actually lived sometime later and been a descendant of Ethan, uh, the Ethan during... Solomon's time, or someone of his ilk who kind of wrote in his name. And the reason they wonder about this is because as you get on into the psalm, the historical description uh, later in the psalm seems to indicate an occasion after the time of David and Solomon in which the Davidic covenant seems to be in jeopardy. And uh, so. He's trusting God for it, and yet it's, it's almost like he's pleading with God to carry through on his promise. So, uh, when would that have happened? Well, we don't know the occasion here. Again, it's not given, but a lot of the commentaries kind of relate this perhaps to the uh, Babylonian exile, but we're not sure. Okay, let's pick it up. Uh, Psalm 89, verses 1 through 4, God's covenant faithfulness. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. You've heard that somewhere before, haven't you? Uh, that's a song that we commonly sing. And it comes from this, uh, from this psalm, Psalm 89. So the psalm begins on a wonderful worship note, uh, a, a worshipful note of faith, with the writer declaring that he will sing of the mercies and the faithfulness of the Lord, that's Yahweh, forever. No matter how dire the circumstances, he is still convinced that God ultimately will fulfill his covenant promises, and he starts out on that note. Now, the word mercies is the Hebrew word hesed. That's a very rich word. Sometimes it's kind of compared to the New Testament uh, word of grace. Uh, it's a very rich word uh, related to God's faithfulness. Uh, it's commonly translated as loving kindness. Uh, also translated as steadfast love or covenant loyalty. As seen here, it's tied very closely to the idea of God's faithfulness, uh, his hesed, his loyal covenant love, his faithfulness. That's the idea. Verse 2, For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. Based on God's covenant faithfulness, he's building something that will endure forever. And specifically, verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen, I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. God's mercy, his covenant love, and his faithfulness are linked to the covenant that God swore to David. David was God's choice, here called God's chosen, and God promised David a seed that would be established forever and a throne that would endure to all generations. Now the seed was introduced in Genesis 3:15 and then developed throughout the Old Testament. The seed would come through the tribe of Judah, as seen in Genesis 49:10, and then more specifically through the line of David, and ultimately, very specifically, through the virgin Mary. Well, all of the specifics related to this seed are fulfilled to the letter in the person of Jesus Christ. The Davidic covenant is fulfilled ultimately in Messiah Jesus. And we see this as we come to the New Testament, uh, Luke chapter 1. He will be great, speaking of Jesus, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He will be the fulfillment of what God promised David, as reiterated here in Psalm 89. Psalm 89, 1-4 is a, is a great statement and uh, deserving of Selah, which emphasizes a musical pause, uh, giving time for reflection and meditation. Verses 5-14, through 14, God prays for his attributes. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. The saints here is literally holy ones. Most commentaries think the holy ones in view here are angelic beings, angels, holy angels. Uh, Heaven and earth praise God for the wonder of His covenant faithfulness. Verse 6, For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? That's a great question. Who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around Him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty Like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. Emphasis here, God is incomparable. In his greatness, no one is like him. God does what no one else can do. And this reality is, uh, in theology, we we say, what is the idea of God's uh, uh, no one like him? He's incomparable. Well, this relates to the idea of him being holy, holy. You see, holy means set apart. There's none other like him. He's completely set apart. He's totally unique in that there's none other like him. He's in a category all of his own. Uh, he can't even be compared. That's why it's, it's so serious, by the way, to make something, you know, a, an idol and, and try to make something that represents God. You can't do that. Um, God is like none other. There's none other on his level. Verse 9 continues, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Ah, this is a mighty God. Who can control the sea? You ever been out to the sea? I mean, it's it's amazing. Uh, It's it's awesome. It's vast. Uh, Who can control the sea? He says, you rule the raging sea. Who is this? This incomparable God. And the idea here of the raging sea seems to be that of chaos. Uh, The Jews saw the raging sea representing unmanageable chaos. Who can manage the sea? Who can manage the unmanageable chaos that the sea represents? Well, you see, God can. He is sovereign over chaos. Isn't that a great line? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, God rules over the unmanageable chaos. He controls nature including the waves of the sea. This had a remarkable application, by the way, to the ministry of Jesus Christ as he stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee. I've told this story before, but uh, I have this uh, cultist. He's not a friend, but I have this cultist person (laughs) who calls me every once in a while. And I know he does this not only with me, but he's called other pastor friends of mine. He calls around to Bible teaching churches. Uh, You know, he's a Jehovah's Witness, I think. And uh, his whole thing is to try to uh, get into an uh, argument with us pastors who believe that Jesus is God. His whole thing is Jesus is not God, and he's trying to convince us that Jesus is not God. Boy, he acts like he knows the Greek backwards and forwards, like it's his mother tongue, you know. I mean, he's all over the place on all this stuff. And he talks so fast, you know, he's going to win the argument, man. I mean, it's not even worth wasting your breath. Well, he called me one week. This is a, a couple, a few years ago. And I was... Uh, I was going through the gospel of Mark. And it so happened that Sunday, I was going to be preaching on Mark chapter 4. And in Mark chapter 4, there was a great windstorm that arose. And it says the waves beat into the boat. Jesus was sleeping in the boat. The disciples were very much awake and terrified, right? And they awoke Jesus. And he said to the sea, Peace be still. And it says, And there was a great calm. And then the text goes on to say, Then the disciples said, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's a great question. And that was the question I put to my friend who called, who's not my friend. <laughs> uh, this is a question I had for the cultist. And what I said to him as I was reading from this text, I said, who controls the weather? You know what he did with that question? This guy has answers for everything. He refused to answer that question. I kept asking him, who controls the weather? Who controls the weather? He would not answer the question. We all know God controls the weather. Look look what this says. It's talking about Yahweh in all the preceding verses. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who stilled the sea in Mark 4? Jesus. Who can this be? Yahweh, in a human body, well, that pretty much ended the conversation. See you next time, or later, whatever. Uh, well, get the flow of thought here. Who can be compared to the Lord? Who can be likened to the Lord? Who is mighty like him? These are the questions. He alone rules the raging sea and stills the waves. And by the way, Jesus did this, showing that he is God Almighty, the incomparable God. God. No one else in the history of the world ever did a miracle like this. Jesus did miracles that no one else ever did because he was in a category all of his own. He's in the God category, the incomparable category. Verse 10, you have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The word Rahab literally means proud one. And is often taken here, a lot of the commentaries bring this out, is thought to perhaps very uh, possibly personify the proud and strong Egyptians. Warren Wiersbe says, The tumultuous sea is an image of the nation, so Ethan mentioned God's victory over Egypt, Rahab. However, many point out that in Canaanite mythology, Rahab was a great sea monster, and is perhaps used here to personify the forces of chaos. In that case, God is shown to rule over whatever forces of controllable chaos are out there, as just illustrated in the raging of the sea. Well, in in whatever the the case, God is shown to be sovereign over whatever these proud, seeming, uh, uncontrollable forces are. Verse 11, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all in its fullness. You founded them, the north and the south. You created them. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, and high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. So God here is praise for his power in creation. Tabor and Hermon are mountains way up north in Israel, and they are personified as rejoicing in God's creative power. God's power is praised, but also his character, his character of righteousness, justice, mercy, and truth. There's overlap in these terms. <clears throat> the psalmist praised God for his incomparable might, but also for his moral greatness. Uh, so note uh, the four things that are brought out here. Part two tonight. There we go. Uh, Righteousness, what is right, justice, uh, judging, right, mercy, covenant, faithfulness, truth, uh, that which is truly so. As I say, there's overlap there. But these form the basis of God's rule, his throne. Verses 15 through 18, the blessedness of God's people. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long. And in in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Well, in view of the greatness of God, the psalm now moves on to emphasize how blessed are the people of God to glory in the privilege of knowing Him. And this is our great privilege in life, to know uh, the God of the Bible, the one true God. And so the people of God celebrate the person of God. He is everything to us. ESV study Bible. The marvel for Israel is that this God has pledged himself especially to them and to their king. This, privilege, this special privilege of Israel is a point frequently made in the Old Testament. And indeed it is. To walk in the light of God's countenance is to walk in his presence. Uh, how wonderful to have this privilege. Uh, God is his people's joy, their strength their exaltation, and we are a God-made people. The shield in verse 18 is thought to be a metaphor referring to the king that God has provided as a protector for the people. Verses 19 through 24, God bless King David. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. In the verses that follow, we have an overview of the Davidic Covenant that was first given through Nathan via instructions in a night vision, see 2 Samuel 7, 17. Some manuscripts have this as plural, holy ones, in which case it perhaps refers to Nathan, yes, but also to Samuel, who initially anointed David and then pointed out his special calling, It is shown to be God that has helped David uh, to be who and what he was. He was a God-made man. Uh, David's position of might and exaltation was from the Lord, as revealed in the Davidic covenant vision. You see, David was chosen from the people. Chosen from the people, it says, meaning he came from an ordinary background. He came from the people, uh, just an ordinary background in terms of being a shepherd boy. And in this, David was really a type of Christ who was born into a very humble context. He grew up in a, in a carpenter's family. Verse 20 I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. Notice God found David. David didn't find the Lord. Emphasis here I found David, my servant. I found my servant David. God anointed David. Uh, this is all God oriented. And I really think uh, when God uh, does it, it's all God. Uh, I have learned that self-made, self-appointed people are really the antithesis consistently of God-ordained leaders. I think if God calls a person, he does put a desire in their heart. But yet at the same time, a man of character waits on God and doesn't trample over people to get to the head of the line. Uh, He lets God put him there. I see David doing this. You know, even after he was anointed, Saul was still uh, in the position of king. What did David do? Did he go into the throne room and wipe off Saul's head? No. He waited for God to let it happen. And boy, it took a time. It took a period of time. Ten years. He's on the run from Saul. Even though Samuel pointed out, you're to be the next king. Yeah. God made people are. What we want. Um, You know, Korah tried to put himself in a position that was not ordained of God. That ended badly. Uh, Saul was the people's choice. That ended badly. Absalom tried to force his way into leadership. That ended badly. David was a God made man, as are all God's servants. Uh, When God had Samuel anoint David with oil, this signified him being God's choice. For a special leadership role. And by the way, he was not the one you would just say, well, yeah, he's the one. Uh, No, he was the last choice. Is there anybody else in the family? Oh, yeah, there's the shepherd boy. He's missing here. Uh, David was not. uh, Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. Uh, Henry Morris said this. "Uh, David was anointed as king, but he is also a type of the Messiah, the anointed one as is evident from uh, Psalm 89, 27 through 29, and then 36 through 37. At this point, Psalm 89 becomes essentially a messianic psalm fulfilled partially in the experience of David, but ultimately fulfilled only in Christ. And so you do see a lot of those parallels uh, coming through, and we will see one very strongly at the end of our study here tonight. Verse 21, "...with whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall strengthen him." The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in in my name, his horn, his position of strength shall be exalted. So David was uniquely blessed of the Lord. God established and strengthened him as king. And God protected him so that his enemies ultimately did not have their way with him. God intervened to help him and defeat his enemies. Adam Clark says, It is worthy of remark that David was never overthrown. He finally conquered every foe that rose up against him. Saul's persecution, uh, Absalom's revolt, Sheba's conspiracy, and the struggle made by partisans of the house of Saul after his death only tended to call forth David's skill, courage, and prowess and to seat him more firmly on his throne. But behind it all is really God. God putting David in the position that he was in. Horn in the Old Testament is a a, a symbol of strength. In God's strength, David's position of strength would be exalted or made high. Again, it was God behind the scenes that was the source of David's strength and exaltation. Never forget if you've reached some position in the world here that's of some uh, status, you're not a a self-made person. Uh, I'm not, you're not, we are God-made people. Certainly spiritually in the Lord, that's what it's all about. Verses 25 through 29, God's covenant with David. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. Now most commentators believe that this reflects the promise in Exodus 23, 31 that God would ultimately give Israel the land between the Red Sea and the Euphrates River. So the text seems to speak of the expansion of Israel's borders that the Lord would bring to pass under David. We're still talking about this, God's choosing of David and and how he's going to bless David. Uh, you go back to Exodus. There we go. Uh, I will set your bounds from the the Red Sea to the Sea Philistia and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. And there's other uh, text in Genesis uh, 15, 18 through 21, the the boundaries of the promised land all the way down into Egypt, uh, all the way over to the Euphrates River. Uh, You know, you have the dimensions. Yet it is pointed out that David never really seemed to fulfill this, uh, leaving it to be ultimately fulfilled by the greater David in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Um, in terms of the map here, uh, you got the territory before David there, but then the conquered by David, uh, this area here. And then under Solomon a little further. But when you look at what God has promised ultimately, it's a whole lot bigger than what uh, they had there. Uh, you got this whole area here from the Euphrates all the way down to the brook of Egypt, as it says in Genesis. And across the desert here. So this whole area, and of course, this is going to be vibrant, uh, fruitful uh, during, in the kingdom. But uh, there's a lot yet to be fulfilled here is the point. Verse 26, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Uh, David Gazik says, you are my father. This was true for David, but even more true for Jesus the Messiah, who did all things looking to and in dependency on God the Father. Verse 27, also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now that term firstborn, it's interesting how the scripture uses this. It can mean firstborn, Born first in time. But in the case of David, where is he in the lineup? Last. He's the last born, not the first born of Jesse. So first born is often used by God to designate a position of highest rank or honor. In Exodus 4.22, the Lord says, Israel, my son, my firstborn emphasizing the place that Israel had in the, in the purpose and the plan of God. Uh, this verse in Psalm eighty nine twenty seven gives the sense that uh, when it says God will make him the highest of the kings of the earth, so firstborns highest in rank. Again, while application is made to David, the ultimate fulfillment will be found in relation to the greater David, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, note some verses that emphasize Christ being the firstborn. Uh, Romans eight twenty nine, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Colossians one fifteen, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians one eighteen, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. And then, here in Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 6, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Revelation 1, 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So we see that idea of firstborn, Uh, being the highest in in rank very consistently. Of course, uh, the cultists want to say it means something else, but they're wrong. Verse 28, My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. The covenant relationship with David will stand forever. God's loyal covenant love with him will never be broken. When we think about the uh, Abrahamic uh, covenant, uh, we uh, break it up into three categories, what God promised Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. And the land, you know, is further amplified here in what we call the land covenant. And then the seed aspect in the Davidic covenant. And uh, the blessing, of course, relates to the new covenant. So these these, uh, three aspects are amplified in these three other covenants. Uh, This is the mother of all the covenants, but the seed aspect relates to the Davidic covenant. And uh, that's what we're talking about here tonight. In terms of the Davidic covenant, there's three things that are emphasized. Uh, House, David is promised a house, dynasty, a kingdom. uh, King must have a kingdom, a sphere of rule. And a throne, the the seat of the government. These things relate uh, to David. And you get right down to it, uh, it needs a king, uh, an everlasting king sitting on an everlasting throne. Verse 29, his seed also I will make to endure forever. And his throne as the days of heaven. David's seed here refers to an individual whose throne will endure forever. The phrase as the days of heaven is a poetic way of saying forever. And this is clearly messianic and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Again, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, this psalm, because of its several references to the Davidic covenant, affirms that the Messiah, a descendant of David, will sit on David's throne and rule over Israel. And note this next line, this taken literally supports the position that Christ is not now sitting on David's throne in heaven, but will rule on his throne on the earth. And that's a very important point in theology. The progressive dispensationalists want to say, well, in one sense, he's already sitting on David's throne. It's in heaven. Well, I don't see David's throne being in heaven. I believe David's throne is on earth, and Christ's kingdom rule will be when he comes to the earth and sits on David's throne in Jerusalem. Uh, That's where David's throne is. We never find David's throne in heaven. I mean, that's a stretch. So anyway, FYI. Well, what glorious promises God made to David in the Davidic covenant? But alas, alas, David's sons proved to be unqualified to be the fulfillment of what God ultimately promised. And so the throne was vacated. And a key reason for the judgment period that we are even now in, called the times of the Gentiles, is because of a lack of godly kings to sit on David's throne. The Davidic line comes through the tribe of Judah, as I said earlier, which is the tribe God ordained to rule. And of the 19 Davidic kings of Judah, only eight of them were good kings. The last four were bad, and the situation deteriorated beyond the point of recovery. The last king to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem was King Zedekiah. In Ezekiel, we read... Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, Zedekiah, whose day has come, whose iniquity iniquity shall end. Thus says the Lord God, Remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble, humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer... Until he comes, whose right it is. Same language as Genesis 49.10. And I will give it to him. This is a prophecy telling us that Zedekiah would be the last king of David's line to rule from David's throne in Jerusalem until the Messiah comes. This period from the fall of Zedekiah until the enthronement of the Messiah is this long period of time called the times of the Gentiles. And note it is characterized as a long period of time with no king sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. And that has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled. Thus there would be a break from Zedekiah until the Messiah comes who has the right to the scepter. Now when Jesus showed up, and presented himself as the rightful king, Israel rejected him. But when he comes a second time, repentant Israel will receive him. In the meantime, the times of the Gentiles continues on with no king sitting on David's throne. That's the problem. Israel doesn't have a king sitting on David's throne. And all these wonderful promises that God has made in relationship to the the Davidic covenant cannot be fulfilled until this seed sits on David's throne. Well, following David, the line of David continued until finally the Messiah, the greater son of David, arrived in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was qualified. He was the legitimate king of Israel, legitimately offering the kingdom to Israel on the condition of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. That was the offer. But alas, they rejected him, and he went to the cross leaving the throne of David still unoccupied as it is to this very day. So here's what we have. Uh, Zedekiah dethroned. Babylonian captivity. Times of the Gentiles. That will continue until the second coming. And what's, what's the problem here? David's throne in Jerusalem is unoccupied during this entire time. Zedekiah was the last... Uh, a descendant of David to sit on the throne, but but he's been overthrown, as it said in Ezekiel. Now, n- no king sitting on, on David's throne. Uh, the throne is unoccupied, and that's a problem. And that's a concern. And perhaps the concern that Ethan has here as he's writing this. Well, they say that if you see a turtle on a fence post, there's one thing you know for sure, Right? That's right. Somebody put it there, right? It didn't get there by itself, right? Well, I want you to know David didn't put himself up in this exalted position. It was God. God gets all the glory, all the credit. You say, well, that David, he was just an amazing man, moving himself. No, he didn't. It was God who took David uh, from being the shepherd to putting him on the throne. And God will yet fulfill all that he has promised to David and through David by yet establishing his eternal throne through his seed, the greater David. Isaiah chapter 9, we know these verses well. Oops, sure, it worked twice there. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We know this is prophetic about Jesus. And then it goes on to say, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. It will go on forever and ever. But then catch this. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The energy of God, the consuming passion of God, the zeal of God, the Lord of hosts, will perform this. It will happen. Even though it is still unfulfilled, God's people know that God has made a covenant promise to David. And because of that promise, that covenant, It will yet be fulfilled. And so you know what we do? We continue to sing with Ethan. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord for seven more days. No, no, no. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. There is going to be a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jesus will one day come as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will sit on that throne in Jerusalem, and he will fulfill all that he has promised to David. It's just a matter of timing. The faithfulness of the Lord will bring it to pass. And so, my friends, keep singing. Let's stand through do that, shall we? Let's have our closing song.